Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Levin. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's a good crowd this morning. It is October uh, the 16th, 2019. We are, um, we'll be welcoming next week Susan Denser, who uh, some of you may re recall from appearances on the NewsHour, among many other um, venues where she is a leader in healthcare reform and healthcare policy. Uh, last week in all of the celebrations, I forgot to mention, although it's timely given our team that's presenting this morning, last week was uh, Pediatric Nursing Week, which I know was celebrated on the sixth floor uh, on pediatric clinics, Chad Pediatric Clinics. So a belated uh, thank you to Pediatric Nursing. Lots in the room today. And this week, if I'm correct, Carly, is Care Management Week, I heard. So uh, for our friends who are in care management also, thank you. And I see some of them, so we'll give you a round of applause. And, and you're whispering. Eric is whispering. Was also, uh, I, I saw Alice was in the weekly. Alice Mello, is, it was Physician Assistant Week last week as well. So she made it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering, are any other are any of our other physician assistants in the room, or is it just Alice representing? Just Alice representing. So, um, so a busy week this week as well. Tomorrow night, um, not here. Rooms A and B. We'll have our all Chad um, semi-annual regional meeting. Uh, we will be welcoming actually our consultants from ECG Management Consultants to share their initial uh, situational assessment findings, in addition to finalizing our purpose, promise, and principles. So dinner starts at five and hope to see you there. And Sunday, hope to see you on the Hanover Green in um, superhero attire or not superhero attire. You're all superheroes anyway, so you don't have to dress up. Uh, all of our friends and community members have to dress up, but if you just come as yourself, you're already superheroes. Uh, weather looks good, so um, hopefully a big turnout. So with all of the um, housekeeping out of the way, it's my pleasure to welcome our complex care team actually to the podium today. And it's really a special uh, appearance for the team in that uh, Dr. Fisher was going to do this with Dr. McGonigal, who had a last minute um, uh, unavoidable conflict. So she pulled in even better. She pulled her team members, Jenna Lee Das, uh, who from nursing and Carly Ogden from care management social work uh, to, to join her. Um, Kathy, I have a CV. I don't have the other CV, so I can't brag about the other, the other two members of the team. But Kathy is actually a native of Maine uh, who completed undergraduate studies at Providence College in Rhode Island and then was a Dartmouth Medical School graduate. Um, just just a little bit of a year behind. She was a sub-I when I was an intern here. Um, went off, as many do, to, um, to Rochester, University of Rochester, for internship and the University of California, Irvine, for residency. While at Dartmouth, she was uh, well-recognized as an Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Society member, as well as the Good Physician Award winner, and um, received the new, was it New England or New Hampshire Pediatric Society Award? Yeah. So received the New England, New England Pediatric Society Award, although we'll check, with, we'll check with New Hampshire Pediatric Society. I bet you received the NHPS Award, which is, which is really one of the top two awards that pediatric-headed uh, folks make, make it to. Um, 
she traveled the world uh, quite a bit in, in San Diego for some practice, Pace, Florida, and most recently we stole her away from Dartmouth-Hitchcock Teens, so she's been part of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock family for 13 years uh, already and has come up here after working and continuing to work at Cedarcrest to be the medical director of the complex care team. So uh, an update for all of us and an important introduction. Kathy's going to lead the show, but it's going to be a great uh, circus. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, thank you for inviting us to speak. Um, hopefully, Jan McGonagall um, will be able to come up at another time to join us. Um, but I'm happy to have the rest of my team here with me this morning. Um, thanks, guys. <laughs> uh, so we're here to talk about the complex care team um, at CHAD. Uh, we have no conflicts to disclose. Uh, goals of our presentation this morning. Uh, so we're going to define children with medical complexity, uh, provide information about Chad's complex care program, um, and discuss the multidisciplinary work uh, that we do uh, through some case presentations. You guys chime in whenever you want. <laughs> Uh, so why are we talking about complex care? Uh, medically complex children represent 6% uh, of children enrolled in Medicaid, but they account for about 40% of Medicaid spending on children. Um, and the prevalence of these kids are increasing. Uh, there's increases in survival, increases in use of medical technology, uh, increases in childhood disability, um, and increases on demand, and demand on schools and the communities. Uh, so this is a slide from the Children's Hospital Association um, that was put out in 2013. Um, so 3 million of the nation's 76 million children in 2013 were defined as medically complex. Um, and as you can see, it's rising. Um, it's increasing about 5% annually compared to a growth rate of typically developing children, which is estimated to be between 1% and 2%. Those are, there's a lot of these kids. Um, what defines medically complex? So this was a definition by the Maternal and Child Health Bureau in 1998. Uh, medically complex children are children with special health care needs. They have an increased risk of chronic physical, developmental, behavioral, or emotional conditions, and they require health care and related services of a type or amount beyond that required by typically developing children. Um, we're talking, these are the kids that we take up, take care of. This is a subgroup um, of the most medically fragile and most intensive healthcare needs. So these kiddos have intensive hospital and or community-based service needs. They have a reliance on technology, uh, polypharmacy and or home care to maintain a basic quality of life. They have risk of frequent and prolonged hospitalizations, uh, risk of frequent ER visit, visits and an elevated need for care coordination. Uh, this was a slide from a journal uh, article in pediatrics, um, just looking at um, complex children with medical complexity um, and the sort of four domains that they highlight. So chronic conditions, these are diagnosed um, sometimes, sometimes they're not known. 
or diagnosis or uh, suspected. Uh, they're severe and associated with medical fragility. They have increased healthcare use. Uh, so these are high resource utilization um, and they necessitate involvement of multiple um, service providers. They have functional limitations that are often severe um, and they're often associated with technology dependence. And they have increased needs, substantial uh, family identified service needs and these kids have a significant impact on their family. Um, this is another slide from the Children's Hospital Association. Um, so kids with medical complexity are in the complex um, six, seven, nine. So those are uh, clinical risk group assignments. So over on the left side, um, acute conditions like fractures and pneumonias that will only last um, less than a year. Um, and then our kids are over in the six, seven, nine uh, category uh, with significant uh, chronic conditions in two or more body systems, uh, progressive or life-limiting um, conditions that require technology dependence. So um, some existing care models for complex care, um, the medical home, um, which involves the PCP um, limitations. People have reported to the medical home model within the PCP office or uh, time constrictions, inadequate payment and lack of decision-making support. Uh, there's a co-management model, um, which is sort of what we do, uh, co-management in that we are not the child's PCP, we co-manage with their PCPs um, and hospital-based models, which are also, so I say, I guess we're a hybrid of those two and um, that we're a tertiary-based um, program um, and we can provide enhanced medical decision-making support and care coordination, but we don't wanna take away um, from the community-based medical care. Um, there are other programs that are strictly um, hospital to medical home transition programs. Um, we do some of that, but we're not strictly that, um, in that we help uh, with the transition from inpatient to um, back to their PCP's office in their communities. Um, there are some programs that are strictly home care based. Um, we do some of that as well. Um, telehome care, um, we have not done any of that, but we're getting trained in two weeks, next week, um, to start doing uh, telehealth visits with patients at their home, and we'll do visits with them that way. Um, and then there are disease-specific specialty clinics, um, which are limited to fitting specific diagnoses. Um, our team also is part of the spina bifida team. Um, so we do have a disease-specific specialty clinic within our program, um, that's the spina bifida clinic. Um, when we were developing our program, so we started two years ago, um, we went and we did a lot of research of what was out there already. Um, we also went to Boston Children's and visited their program. Um, it's hard to model after them because it's so big. <laughs> um, and they have separate inpatient complex care team and an outpatient complex care team. Um, but it was helpful just to get some ideas from them of sort of where to start and where to go. Um, and then we visited CHOP as well um, in Philadelphia. We were there for a pediatric complex care conference. Um, and then went and visited the complex care team at CHOP. Um, and they're more similar to what we're doing. They're an outpatient consultative clinic only. Um, so we sort of modeled a lot of what we started anyway after what they did. 
Um, so this is our team, complex care team at CHAD. Um, we provide family-centered, coordinated, compassionate, and comprehensive care for children with special health care needs under the age of 21. Um, they are, um, typically are followed by three or more specialty providers um, here at CHAD, um, and they're not receiving uh, care coordination from other multidisciplinary clinics like cystic fibrosis, cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy clinic. Um, these are just some examples of what our patients have. This is certainly not limited to these diagnoses. Um, I think we had 10 kids on our list when we started <laughs> in 2017, and mostly those were um, um, TLC grads that needed a new home. Um, so we do see kids that have complications of prematurity, but we see um, lots of other things as well. Um, currently, we have 120 kids as of last week on our patient list. Um, that list changes on a weekly basis depending on new referrals and people that move out of, of our program. Um, 80 of those kids are from New Hampshire, 40 are from Vermont. 80% um, of the children that we follow have a PCP outside of DHMC, um, either out in Vermont or New Hampshire. And we also have 100 and, approximately 160 kids on our spine bifida clinic list. Uh, so what are our goals? Um, we help medically complex children and their families live the most comfortable life they can while managing health care needs. We're hoping to reduce unnecessary ER visits and trips, uh, prevent or shorten hospitalizations. Um, and the big one, I think, is really to simplify care to ease the burden on the families of these um, children um, and meet the family's goals. Uh, medical director role. So we thought we'd go through the next couple slides and just describe um, what each of us do. Um, there's a lot of overlap um, in that, but sort of going through each of them. Um, so when we get a new referral, um, and there's a later slide that shows where those come from, um, I usually try to reach out to that referral source to see why they're making the referral, what are the needs that the family has. Um, I do a review of their medical record. Um, sometimes we talk to the family too beforehand, before they come in for an appointment to, to see um, where they're at and what their needs are. Um, and then we have an appointment with the child and the family um, and just go over all of their medical care, social issues, nursing issues. <laughs> um, we coordinate, I coordinate care with the PCPs and specialists. Um, I act as a point of contact for families, PCP specialists, community supports, schools, um, and specialists outside of CHAD uh, for questions or concerns. Um, we're a point of contact for the inpatient team when the child's admitted to the hospital. Um, we help develop care plans, um, and then we help family determine their goals for their kids. Um, and I help educate and support families around medical decision-making. So for the registered nurse role in complex care, um, a good bulk of uh, my job is to do the complex care coordination, um, which can be a variety of things. Um, a lot of it has to do with communication between um, our community partners, schools, PCP offices, other specialty care offices, other facilities, our inpatient team. 
Um, there's a lot of players in the game to coordinate. Um, I do a lot of uh, complex care nursing triage. Um, the type of calls that come through for triage to complex care um, are typically when the parents aren't sure who to call. It's it's not really a problem that lies within one specialty. So they we encourage families to call here so um, I can actually page multiple providers and get a couple people in on um, what parents are struggling with at home. Um, I do a lot of assistance getting durable medical equipment. Um, I'm sure a lot of nurses in this room um, also understand how difficult it is to get um, insurance to cover items that are sort of outside of the walls of standard equipment that's ordered. And so I, I do a lot of advocacy around making sure that these kids have what they need at home to have the quality of life. Um, so it's a lot of paperwork and uh, a lot of asking and pleading for funds and insurance coverage. Um, I um, answer a lot of questions, uh, talk about challenges with family, make a lot of um, medical plans for, you know, when do you give your feeds versus medications and sort of work within the rounds of things that are already ordered just to help family sort of move through their day to day. And then um, I provide training within the walls here at Dartmouth, um, G2 training, trick training, <clears throat> whatever's needed, emergency training. Um, but I also go out in the community and teach at schools, in patients' homes, and um, we have another slide where I talk a little bit more about that. Um, we coordinate with um, special medical services and children with special health needs. Um, my goal is to focus more on the medical piece of that collaboration. So um, if special medical services is already working with a school for community purposes, um, I might be asked to go in to do medical training, which um, that's something that they don't do. So we fill in those gaps. So that's my last point, fill in the gaps. There's there's a lot of gaps out there. And I guess, you you know, I never, I never realized that working as an inpatient nurse before. My patient would come in, they'd be sick, we'd make them better, they'd go home, and I'd be like, great, done. <laughs> but there's so much more to taking care of these kids than I guess I ever realized. Um, so the social work role in complex care um, is certainly, I work very closely with generally in particular, I think our role sometimes will will cross, um, but I typically get more involved with families when their psychosocial needs are are great. Um, so I do a lot of similar coordination with our community-based agencies. My goal is always to find a connection within um, the family's community that's going to be able to be a really strong support system for them um, so that they're not just relying on our team um, kind of when they're in crisis or when there's things that come up. Um, so. I work really closely with uh, the CSHN in Vermont and our SMS folks in New Hampshire. Um, I focus a lot on connecting families with the resources that don't necessarily have anything to do with their child's medical care, but obviously impact their ability to make sure that their children's medical needs are being met. Um, so I'm tackling all the fun stuff, housing, um, transportation, food, um, mental health support, um, financial um, assistance, social security, all that good stuff. Um, I think a big part of my role is to also help to facilitate effective and efficient communication. Um, there's oftentimes huge teams that are working with these families, um, and we're not always talking to each other, or we don't even always know that we that each other exist. Um, so I'm oftentimes trying to make sure that we're not duplicating efforts, we're not um, all doing the same thing in, in efforts to help these families. Um, 
And obviously I'm, I'm involved if there's any child protection concerns um, or involvement. I advocate for patients' needs um, in the communities, but also sometimes within our system here at Dartmouth. Um, we all, I think, have the same goal and effort to um, you know, maximize children's care, um, but we're not always on the same page, I think, as to what the family's goals are. So um, a lot of times I'm able to kind of help be a voice for the patient and the, and the parents. Um, and then kind of like what generally said, filling the gaps, just general problem solving. It just seems like there's always something. <laughs> um, and it's nice that families know that they have a point of contact with our team um, to be able to just like help. I don't know what to do here. So. <clears throat> Um, so this is a slide that we um, developed just to sort of um, put it in perspective, all of the things that our families are dealing with. Um, so you have the medically complex child and their family in the middle. Um, when they're at home, this is a sort of a list of all of the people and um, agencies um, that they are having to not deal with, but work with. Um, and that's, that's a lot. Um, and then when they're in the tertiary care center, when they're here, you know, they have to deal with the, the hospital team, their pediatric specialist, they may have their PCP or their medical home here, um, and we can help them sort of move back and forth between home um, and the tertiary care uh, center, uh, especially with complicated um, discharge. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but um, I think it's helpful to have a team to help people move uh, between those areas. Um, and there's just, it's a lot, it's a lot more than just their medical diagnosis. Um, so this just sort of puts it in perspective. Um, residential care I put in there, we do have some um, kids that move through all three of those um, areas um, and residential care specifically talking about Cedar Crest. Um, we have some families that use Cedar Crest for long-term care. Um, they also use it just for respite care. Um, we had a 18 year old last fall that we started following um, before he had scoliosis surgery at Boston Children's and um, we were able to keep in touch with mom while he was there. He had some pretty significant post-op complications, um, ended up at Cedar Crest, had never been there before um, so that parents could finish doing their training. While he was there, he got sick, ended up at a community hospital, went back to Cedar Crest and then finally went home. So we did kind of a full circle um, with him and his family um, and I would think the family would say it was really helpful um, for them to have one team that knew the whole story from beginning to end. Um, and I, you know, we ended up doing stuff with equipment for their home, training for the school um, that, that they hadn't had before. So um, I think for that kiddo, that worked out pretty well. Guys have anything to add on that slide? Uh, so who refers to complex care? Um, Pretty much anybody. <laughs> um, so we get referrals from families, we get referrals from primary care providers and specialists, um, care coordinators, um, and that can be from special medical services, um, area agencies, or insurance care managers. Um, so we've seen all of those. Um, from schools, we've had school nurses um, that have referred in kids, um, partners in health, area agencies, early supports and services. Um, psychologists, therapists, um, discharge planners. So kind of from all over, um, doesn't matter. We'll talk to people. <laughs> so 
So one person that we haven't mentioned yet that is uh, the backbone of our team is our program coordinator, Annette Helms. And if <laughs> anybody knows Annette, she knows how to get things done around this hospital, get things scheduled and coordinated. So this this slide is, is dedicated <laughs> to her. <laughs> um, so Annette will actually work with our families who um, maybe they have a kid that has just a ton of equipment and it's really hard to get them in the car park to get them out of the car and into the building. And so we'll try and coordinate as many appointments with specialists as we can on either the same day or on back-to-back uh, -back days. And Annette will actually coordinate them to have a stay at David's house if the family does have that preference. Um, and then I think Carly and Annette work nicely together to help set up transportation if they have any um, difficulties getting here and, and um, navigating that. Um, I work a lot with um, the coordination of procedures, lab draws, and studies with Annette. Um, so we do a, a, a lot of our kids do coordinated sedation events where we try and get a couple of things done while they go under sedation, um, just to minimize the amount of times that they're exposed to anesthesia. Um, and we also will coordinate procedures not only here, but also at other facilities if that is better for the patient. So if they live really far away and or their insurance doesn't cover or whatever the reason, um, we'll actually work to have studies done at outside facilities and I'll be in touch with them to coordinate and figure out how to get that information back to the ordering provider. And then also working with other facilities, which I know Kathy can speak to. Um, yeah, we've been trying to do more work with Boston Children's, um, especially around um, care coordination and communication um, um, for our spina bifida kids who are getting um, specifically uh, spinal fusions down there. Um, it's a lot easier for families to get their pre-op work done here rather than having to go there, come back, go there. Um, and then we can sort of know what's happening and be involved in their care when they are discharged. Um, so we're working on that. Um, we've had a couple kids that we've had some success with, but um, yeah. Um, so transitions to home, um, we are able to help with equipment needs and questions uh, when families are going home from the hospital, any medication questions they have. Um, if we do home health visits, we'll meet with home health nurses um, when, they're on, when they're discharged. Um, if we don't do a home visit, we're able to do a point of contact for those home health nurses for any questions or concerns they might have. Um, and oftentimes, um, if we do do a home visit um, with a around a discharge, we'll have um, as many sort of community support people that we can um, available at the house for those home visits. Um, we did one in June that I think it was, we had, it was the most successful one we ever had. And we had everybody there. It was great. We had nursing support. We had SMS care coordinator. We had his insurance care coordinator. We had all of his therapy team um, all in his living room, which was pretty good. Um, and I think it made the mom feel a lot better about being home um, after a pretty significant uh, hospitalization for her child. Um, so communication, this is probably the biggest thing that we do for um, our children and their families. So we can organize and take part in team meetings. Um, again, just a point of contact for families and community providers. <clears throat> so they have questions or concerns they know they can just call and we'll help them figure out where to go from there. Um, we do attend school meetings um, to provide medical education to staff um, if needed. Um, so like Jenna Lee was talking about a lot of trade training, G G-tube training, questions about medications. 
Um, and we just advocate uh, for families um, and communicating their needs and wants um, to their team. Um, we're working on getting better at developing care plans uh, for these families. So plans that families can hold on to and they can share with whomever they want. Um, if they end up in the emergency room, they can have a care plan. If they um, are at school, they can share with their school team. Um, so generally has been working hard at getting um, care plans in place for these families. Uh, we do do home visits. Uh, so usually around a new diagnosis or a recent hospital discharge, but not always. Um, sometimes we do them for transportation issues and that's whether the family doesn't actually have transportation to get here or that transporting their child and any other siblings in the house is just too much then um, they just can't get here. So we will do home visits around around those issues. Um, and I think it's really nice because we can do a lot of education for the families and um, community members all at the same time. Um, like I said, we try to get as many people as we can um, at those visits. So um, everybody's hearing the same thing. Um, and I think families are more, we get more information when we do home visits, I think from families, they're more themselves. The kids are more themselves. Um, sometimes when we see them, we try, when we see them here, it's usually coordinated with other visits. Um, and if we're at the end of <laughs> the third or fourth visit of the day, usually the parents are done and the kids are done. And so usually our visits, if they're here and we're at the end are really quick because they just want to go home. Um, so if we do home visits, it's a lot more productive, I think for everybody. It's really sweet when we go do home visits and these kids ha are surrounded by their toys and their bedroom. And so the first thing that happens when we walk in usually is, Dr. Fisher, can you come see my bedroom? I want you to come see my room. And I think the last one was really sweet to me. We had a, a child who had one of those um, lawn mowers that makes noise and blows bubbles. And he was like landscaping the whole living room <laughs> while we were there. But um, it just creates opportunity to have conversation starters the next time we're with those families as well. Um, and so, you know, like the, the one little girl had just painted her bedroom pink because we're like, oh, are you loving your pink bedroom? And it's just a nice way to really build, build a relationship with these kids and these families. Um, okay, so we thought we'd talk about some challenges that we've had since starting. Um, the first one um, is when they're complex, but they don't meet criteria for medically complex. Um, so we definitely get some referrals um, that have lots of social complexities. They may have, um, you know, one specialty that follows them, but lots and lots of social complexities. Um, it's really hard to be helpful in those situations. Um, we try, um, but it's hard. And the other um, big thing is mental health uh, complexities. Um, we try, we don't take kids in our program that have a primary uh, mental health diagnosis. Um, we don't, we don't have the manpower to, to, to take care of those kids. So those are challenging um, because we want to help um, and they are complex, but it's just, it's hard. Um, home health nursing support. Uh, so there's a nursing shortage <laughs> um, and it's hard for these families. They are out there um, on their own. Um, so not only is there number-wise a lack of nursing, but there's also a, a lack of nurses who have comfort and training to take care of these medically complex kids. Um, so sometimes they'll get it, you know, families get all excited, the agencies found them a nurse, um, and the nurse comes to the house and they don't, they don't feel comfortable taking the kid. That happens 
um, quite a bit. Um, a lot of our families are rural. Um, they live really far from here, um, and there's lack of resources um, in their community. Um, another challenge we found is when their specialty care moves outside of Chad, um, it's hard for us to be the, the team that um, sort of following along or knowing all when they don't have their specialty care here. Um, Boston Children's is, is great, but it's hard to get um, notes from them unless their PCP is here. We don't autom automatically get those specialty notes. Um, and sometimes families will call with questions about those visits and it's hard for us to help because we don't know what happened. Um, and then another uh, challenge is sort of when expectations um, of all of the parties involved don't meet. So um, sometimes we get referrals um, and the expectations of the referring source and the family don't match. Um, and they want us to sort of mediate that and it's hard to do that as well. Um, sometimes families will be really honest with us and say, we don't want another team involved. We don't want another person to answer to, um, and they'll, they'll decline the referral. Um, but sometimes what, what the referring source wants and what the family wants are really different. And it's, it's hard to play the mediator in that situation. Anything else, any other challenges you guys want to, uh, so the future, um, so we'll continue to grow. Um, strengthen our partnerships with community members, um, continue to support these families with a lack of home health care and nursing support. Um, we are working on transition to adult services. So we've had a couple um, kids that we have helped transition to adult services um, in our complex care program and in Spina Bifida Clinic. Um, it's a challenge. It's hard for these families, um, you know, when they've been with these pediatric providers for their whole lives. Um, and it's hard to find um, adult PCP providers who feel comfortable taking on these kids. Um, so oftentimes we do the transition and we still get the phone calls, um, which is fine. Happy to help with the transition. Um, telehealth, I mentioned we're getting trained in two weeks uh, to start doing telehealth visits um, with families um, at their home. And then, Carly, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about the advocacy piece. Well, yeah, I mean, I think... You know, we I think have a lot of opportunity to play a role, I think, on a state level to shed light on the, the challenges that our families are facing. Um, and there's so much to be done um, that, you know, I think that's one of the goals that we have is to, to find some purpose in the work that we're doing to create a larger change. Um, so that's one of my personal goals with our, with our team. Yeah. The systems that these families have to navigate is amazing it's outrageous it's very overwhelming um and then we um i just wanted to mention that we had a, a meeting at the end of may um it takes a village was the name of the meeting um that was uh, a, lots of people from the state of new hampshire um that are involved in taking care of these kids um, parents physicians nurses school people um, people from all over the state and it was it was really nice to see that there's so many people that care um, and want to do the right thing. Um, and one of the couple of big things that came out of the meeting was, you know, sort of communication and how important it is for these families to have everybody know what's going on. They don't want to keep telling their story over and over again. Um, so that communication, care plans, um, and then just a lot of talk about the lack of nursing support and the impact on these families. Um, we have not had one with the uh, state of Vermont yet, but 
hopefully that will be coming. Um, I just wanted to mention um, the tertiary versus the community-based complex care. So um, Jan McGonigal runs a complex care network. Really unfortunate that we both of our programs were developed almost at the same time and have almost the same name. Um, but Jan <laughs> has a team through um, SMS that um, we that we work with. Um, and so we've sort of fi figured out that we're sort of the tertiary-based complex care team and her team um, is the community-based complex care team. Uh, so we do lots of handoffs back and forth uh, between the two teams um, and work pretty closely with children with special health care needs in Vermont as well. And again, it's just to decrease the burden on these families and be the primary organizers and communicators about their child um, and support the families through their experiences uh, with their child. Um, this is just contact information, so how to um, reach me, how to make referrals, um, call, email, and basket message. We have Tuesday afternoon complex care rounds. Um, anyone's welcome. Um, and then this is for, this is Jan's, Jan McGonigal's team, the Complex Care Network. Um, if anyone has a referral they'd like to, to get to them. So we thought we'd just do a couple cases just to sort of, t um, show what we do. <laughs> Carly. Um, so this is a, a, a young little girl. Um, she showed up at Dartmouth. I think she first hit um, Dr. Alnamir's office, <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, it became clear, I think, is he here? Okay. Um, I think it became clear to him right away that um, we needed to be involved. Um, her family had recently moved from Puerto Rico. They originally had ported to Holyoke because um, mom had done some research and knew about Shriners um, and had some sort of family or friend connection there. Unfortunately, she, they couldn't find housing. Um, so they moved to the Claremont area where they also had family. Um, the, the child's father actually was living in Claremont with, a, with some family. So they show up here um, needing everything. Um, this child, I think she was in five. I think she was younger than five. But she was, yeah, it, she's five now. But she's yeah. five now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so just to get a sense of, of when you meet this child, she was four at the time, but she looked like she was about 18 months old. Um, so she was, I think, kind of a, a shocking um, patient to come across for, for many people. Um, but this family was just immediately, like, you just were so endeared to them. Um, so mom shows up. She's got three kids. They don't speak any English. Um, they've obviously gone through a, a horrible event in their, um, in their country. Mm -hmm. um, and mom's Basically, main concern is I just want my daughter to survive. That was her mode of thinking. Like, she's just in survival mode um, and has really been since she was born. Um, so I think one thing that struck me from the beginning is how important it was going to be for us to build trust with this mom. She was certainly needing to adjust to a whole new healthcare system. And our expectations of how to manage her care were much different than what she had been accustomed to. The fact that we had this team that was kind of wrapping around her, she was certainly appreciative of, but I think it was also super overwhelming. Um, you know, we had her booked with appointments, you know, pretty much immediately. And I think mom, again, appreciated, but it felt very overwhelming and very fast. Her main con concern was around this child's um, needs within our endocrine, um, with endocrine folks. And um, in Puerto Rico, that was the doctor that she turned to for everything. 
So that relationship was super, super important to her more than any other position. Um, so when, you know, we were talking about primary care and I think she started off here in primary care, but then they ended up switching down to um, Dr. Sullivan in, in Claremont. Um, but, you know, even just talking about a PCP, it kind of like the concept didn't even really matter to her because she cared so much about this, this child's endocrine needs. Um, so I remember having a conversation with Francis, um, trying to prep her really for what this mom's <laughs> expectations were of her, um, because she had goals. She wanted growth hormones. She wanted, um, outcomes. And, um, she really had this kind of this God mentality of what the endocrine doctor would be able to provide for her, for her daughter. Um, so that's heavy. That's a lot for anybody to take on. And I think it was helpful that I was able to build some relationship with this mom pretty early on, in part because I was able to provide her some really concrete resources. So um, I was able to help meet some of their basic needs, which I think instilled in her a sense of trust that I was in this with her. And I was very interested in making sure that her family and her daughter got what they needed. Um, and I think that's something that's unique about our team is that we have the ability to spend time and a lot of energy and building out those relationships and building that trust. Um, they needed everything. I mean, luckily she had a Section 8 voucher, um, which was somewhat of a miracle when I found that out. Um, there was like my glimmer of hope that <laughs> all would not be lost. Um, and they ended up finding housing in Lebanon. Um, and this mom was very savvy, you know, but at the same time, that mistrust and that lack of kind of being able to just follow the guidance of our team, um, the whole big medical team was something that took a long time, um, particularly around vaccinations. So she had not been vaccinated um, when she was, I think shortly after she was born, someone had advised her them not to vaccinate her, I think at that time, but mom took that as that she should never be vaccinated. Um, and that became complicating because she started entering into her early intervention um, services through a school system. And um, I think the school, to be honest, like kind of overlooked this for a minute and she ended up enrolling and, and almost being in, in school for an entire year or receiving school services for a year before they realized, oh wait, she hasn't been vaccinated. Um, so that was something that I think at the beginning of our time together, she was completely resistant to. And then by the end, um, meaning they ended up moving, um, but by the end of our, our time with them, um, mom was open to having that conversation. She was open to hearing the perspective of, um, you know, doing like having a plan for vaccinations rather than just saying no to everything. Um, so I think that just spoke to the fact that, you know, the work that we had put into building trust, building that relationship really made a difference. Um, and she knew truly that we had her and her child's best interests at heart. Um, I think one of the things that really sticks out to me with this case is how clear it became to me that our systems, um, not necessarily within Dartmouth, but the systems in our community um, are completely completely inadequate in terms of um, access to language services. Um, they interface with just about every system, housing, state or financial assistance, um, Medicaid, schools, um, all of those things, and none of them were equipped initially to, to deal with, um, to be able to provide the equitable access to, um, to their services. Um, some of those systems responded really well and immediately understood their legal obligation to do so. <laughs> And, you know, took the steps that they needed to, to get, to get that um, language access available, but it took a ton of advocacy work, um, I think on um, the behalf of our interpreter services team and myself to really help folks understand, um, not just like the legal obligation to do this, but why it makes such a difference um, in, in their ability to do their work effectively with the family. Um, 
So I learned a lot working with this family um, and certainly feel like our team played a huge role in them being able to be as successful as they were. They ended up deciding to move, um, recognizing I think that their need for more family support became pretty significant. And they had family living in the Buffalo, New York area, um, which I told this mom, she complained about the winters. I said, you're, <laughs> you're making a choice here. Um, but, you know, again, we, we played a huge role, I think, in, in helping that transition for them. It was a pretty scary thing for them to, to leave Puerto Rico in the first place and then making another move so quickly. I think the mom felt very much like it, that was a less scary move to make because she knew she had a team of folks um, that were there to support that change. Um, and I've been in contact with her a few times since they've left and, and they're doing quite well. Um, so I feel like she's a bit of a success story So <laughs> she left us. So. <laughs> uh, so the next one I just wanted to mention um, because we do take care of the spina bifida uh, kids here at Chad. Um, so this was a five-year-old female with spina bifida. She had a VP shot in place, neurogenic bowel and bladder, and she was autistic. Um, she was born here and initially followed by the spina bifida team. The family left the area and they were lost to follow up. Um, and then she showed up here again uh, in May of 2018. Um, and we had to work pretty hard to get her reconnected um, to all of her uh, medical team, to school. Um, there was lots of social um, issues uh, with this family. Um, and one of the bigger challenges um, with this family was around the expectations of sort of what the family wanted to do and what they didn't want to do. Um, she had a really great school team, um, which was great for her. Um, and it, we had a really nice relationship uh, with that school team. Um, but mom didn't always agree with what the school team wanted and what we wanted. So it was a bit of a challenge. This was another one that <laughs> recently moved as well. Um, so we've helped her transition. They moved to Maine. Um, so we've helped them transition to programs in Maine. Um, but just highlighting that we do uh, take care of the spine bifida uh, population as well. Um, so this is a, a another complex um, case study that we did. And I think um, a lot of people in this room probably have also touched this story. This was a really long admission here at Chad and continues um, to be a child that we follow here within our walls. Um, so this was a previously healthy three-year-old um, born to um, a, a parents with four children. So he was one of four. Um, he came to us by helicopter in a cardiac and respiratory arrest. Um, it was a kind of a, a puzzle putting it together, but he was diagnosed with ROHAD, which is rapid onset obesity, hypoventilation, hypothalamic dysfunction, and autonomic dysregulation. Um, and uh, he did some time at Boston, we, so we shared him between facilities, and our team really became involved towards the end of his discharge. Um, so Dr. Fisher and, and I um, followed along for the medical piece of getting him discharged home. So a previously healthy child who is now going home with a G-tube, that was a really tough um, healing G-tube, so he had a wound back for some time. Um, a trach, and a ventilator. So I'm um, also having a suction machine, pulse ox, um, tons of medications. And um, the primary um, presentation of this child's autonomic dysfunction is um, like these uh, storming events with hypertension. Um, and 
I think that uh, our team did a really nice job in the beginning. He was so hard to manage and he was on a lot of pressers. We got him to a really good spot, but the nature of Rohad is that these storming events can happen even with all of those nice medications on board. Um, so he continues to be followed by our team really, really closely. Um, so for the discharge, uh, we, we met with the inpatient team. We're a part of all of the discharge planning meetings. Um, Wanda was here at the time, so she and I really partnered together almost day to day um, until he was discharged. We planned for a home visit the following day um, of his uh, return home, you know, also going home to meet VNA and all of his vendors for all the equipment that he was going to get. And we actually, it was pretty impressive. We arrived and I had coordinated for his EMS team, the local EMS team. Um, they live very, very rurally um, to come to and meet him at his home so that everybody on the EMS team could meet this little boy and meet the family so that if there was ever an emergency, everybody would already know where the house is, know which door to come in, know how to get him and get him into the ambulance very quickly. Um, I think Dr. Fisher and I didn't expect when we arrived there, the entire living room was filled with people. Uh, it was very impressive um, and um, very, very, like very well-trained EMS, very seasoned, um, but never had a little boy with a trach. Um, they'd all seen a trach, but um, uh, many of you know, I think that tracheostomies in children are very, very similar, just with slight differences. Um, they'd never seen a trach with a cuff. And so uh, it was a nice opportunity to talk about that, uh, go through you know, his backup settings on his ventilator, um, talk about uh, a plan with them. Dr. Fisher um, you know, made a plan with the parents, you know, first storming event call 911, XYZ, we made a really nice plan. After leaving his home, we then visited the local ED at Huggins Hospital. And uh, we went in and also did some education there specific to this child. Um, so uh, we continue to support that local ED team and the EMS team. Um, I've actually talked to them a couple of times and debriefed about um, some emergency situations that have happened prior, uh, you know, since, since he's been home. Um, we also put into plan in a, a, the emergency care plan that I was talking about. Um, the emergency care plan for Huggins Hospital is to call Dartmouth um, <laughs> because he is, he's really complicated and complex and very hard to manage. Um, and uh, I, I put this, this point on here for, for telephone support and triage. I talked to this family almost on, I would say a couple of times a week. Mm -hmm. um, Mom shoots me little thoughts and messages that I can relate to the team. Um, he, has a, he has a pretty substantial team here at Dartmouth. So um, I, I think that I, I like to take on the role to, to try and share mom's thoughts and concerns and, and be her advocate on the side of things for the medical piece. But um, I, I think there was, there was one morning I came in, I just had my coffee, I was talking with Annette, getting started for the day, and the phone rings, and it's this little boy's dad. And so I pick up the phone, and I say, um, how can I help you? And he says, well, I just want to let you know that his blood pressure is a little bit high. So it's like, okay, well, how high is it? Um, I, I can't remember exactly. It was like 160s over... Like hundreds. And I was like, well, that's pretty high. So I pulled up his mar and we walked through. I said, okay, well, what have you done? And he says, well, I gave him, I gave him his um, beta law and he vomited it. And then I gave it to him again. And then he vomited again. I was like, okay, let's give him his clonidine because that's the next thing on your list. And then I want you to take his blood pressure 
in, um, in a minute, and, I went, and I'm going to stay on the phone with you. And I think his next blood pressure was 190s over 120s, or it was pretty significant. So I said, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to hang up with me. I want you to call 911, and then I want you to call me back. And so he did that. And it was, it was this unexpected phone call where he was just like, mm, I just feel like I should call you. And then it turned into um, an event where it took EMS about 15, 20 minutes to get to his home. In that time, the little boy lost consciousness, um, hypo was hypoventilating, was epoxic, uh, hypoxic, uh, needed to be um, bad. His ventilator did not provide a, enough support for him um, to be uh, perfused efficiently. Um, he continued to have high blood pressure. We worked through, and you know, Dr. Fisher's also there with me in the background, helping, calling, the calling the, the PICU uh, attending, <laughs> calling for the helicopter. Um, it was really scary. And I think the last thing the dad said to me on the phone was, okay, they got him in the car, but he's limp. So I'm going to drive. And I said, do you want, do you want me to stay on the phone with you? He was like, yes, just for a minute. And so he, he went, um, got to the hospital. And I think that dad called still the complex care team a couple of times while he was getting settled at Huggins. And there was one point where I said, he kept updating us, you know, giving us the labs, giving, telling us. So I said, you know what? I think you're good now. You got him to where he needs to go. Let's, let's have you be dad now for a little bit. And, um, but he did, he did fantastic. And this was just a wonderful example uh, to present to you today about some of the things that we're able to do with these families. Um, we continue to have uh, regular um, coordination for this child. He comes in monthly for IVIG, and uh, we coordinate all of his specialty appointments to happen um, during his infusion. So it's a little bit um, it's a little bit out of the sorts for some providers who have to go down and see patients in 3K instead of 6M where they're used to. But um, everyone's happy to do it and happy to help facilitate. Um, we also coordinate inpatient stays that are planned um, for children like like this child um, who needed to have sedation, and we were worried about his autonomic storming coming out of anesthesia. Uh, and so, and again, our specialty physicians here are just wonderful and so willing to go wherever he is in the hospital. They're like, yes, I'll see him. Just tell me where to go. And um, we also do team meetings. Um, I think the other day we were able to pull together a really fantastic meeting with even Boston providers that he sees um, on the phone and, and mom to make sure that we were all on the same page and taking care of this really complex child. Um, so I just wanted to share uh, a quote that we received from a family um, feedback through family voices um, that sort of, I guess, speaks to what we do. You need to understand how monumental this is for me to be this positive about this visit. We have inpatient, we have been inpatient here many times, and though I'm not a controversial person, in the past I've never felt listened to and I've needed to get in their faces to be heard. Even if they didn't listen, I think they are so overwhelmed by his complexities they didn't have or didn't care enough to give him the time he deserved. The complex care team has changed all of that. They have been there for us even when we're home. They arranged admissions so we waltz right in. That's not really what happens, but <laughs> <laughs> if that's what she thinks, that's great. Um, the room was waiting for us. Everyone is now focused on him. And while I still don't have answers, I know they're trying as hard as they can. They're working together and collaborating before they round on us. I no longer feel like I have to defend every little or big thing about his condition. The complex care team are advocating for us. It is such a tremendous relief I'm a single mom with another child to care for. They have given us our lives back. 
Thank you. So one before Charlene, um, for a comment. So um, if those who are keen observers of these grand rounds have noticed there's been a not so hidden agenda. We had uh, we had Jay Barry up from Boston Children's a couple of years ago. We had my friend Sarah Freeberg from Akron here several years ago. Um, Pushing for a con so I'm over the moon that this program is up for two years uh, and, and really running. Uh, that said, we've been doing it for 30 years. So we mentioned the spina bifida program, which brought this skill set to a very small subset of diagnoses. And uh, transitional long term care. Lark Cogswell and Kate Richards are in the back. I don't know if Tyler's here. Uh, but Torn but Rhodes did this for 30 years for the, the post NICU grads. So um, I, I see those programs as, as a big family siblings with, with Annette as the queen of the family, <laughs> as you can understand, and we only have uh, great opportunities ahead. Um, Jolene, I think you had the first question. I was um, wondering how you deal with the palliative care end of things, and do you, we all do palliative care, obviously, it's mm -hmm. part of our jobs, but... Do you consult them? Do you bring them in, or do you tend to do that yourself? Um, we have tended to do that most of our mostly by ourselves. Um, we have not we have not consulted the palliative care team here. Um, so yeah, mostly stuff that we've done ourselves. We we also work with uh, community palliative yeah. care programs for our our kids and um, get them set up. Um, there's a Keen Home Health Care and Hospice, and there's a few other. Yeah, Vermont um, Vermont actually has, the state has a palliative care program mm -hmm. for kids with special health care needs, so it's actually a state-run palliative care program. Um, and most of our kids are automatically sort of part of that program um, when, we, when we meet them. I did. I went so, to, a, yeah, I went to a palliative care conference a couple weeks ago. The program was to get some of the team members to train in palliative care to be not to do it to, to be able to access Dartmouth Hitchcock resources as necessary. Um, I'll also um, mention that Muskeag Health, which many of you might remember as Child Health Services, some of program, is a, a great partner. We many of you have patients in Manchester, many of us actually practice in our Manchester hub. There is a nurse, I don't know if you want to talk about our relations in Manchester, Kate and, and Laura go to Manchester. They're, they're the same. I do, but that's probably an area that another, we need to sort of birth another family member. I'm not sure. I, I do work with a lot of, you know, the, the other coordinators at, at primary care offices and at our local, um, even, um, other Dartmouth locations, their coordinators. Kathy, one last pitch. There is another sibling, or maybe a cousin, which is Lisa, um, Lisa Plotnick's program in Manchester is now really very much focused on mm -hmm. transitions of care. She's met peds and will probably be inheriting some of these. Yeah, families. we've started sending her some of so, these kids. So it's a really happy family growing. That was my question to either you or Keith about, again, I have a lot of adolescent patients who are transitioning. For those who are cognitively normal, but with medical complexity, I'm wondering how you're supporting them with all their usual adolescent problems of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then for those who are significantly cognitively impaired, helping the families transition. I have a lot of families in my practice now 
who struggle with trying to figure out how to get Social Security benefits, uh -huh. how to find an adult provider, how to find a dentist, yep. that is impossible mm -hmm. in yep. either state to find a dentist who can care for these kids. Yes. How to get guardianship papers. Mm -hmm. like, it's a year and a half long, two-year process to get guardianship papers. Yep. I'm wondering how you get that support to do that. We, we go through that process with them. We try to help them, but, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging. Um, it's really challenging. And I think we, especially around the PCP piece, we do do a lot of sort of back-end support. You know, we'll transition, but it's, okay, we're still available if you need help. Um, I think how long did you spend trying to find a dentist for a kid recently? Like, it's, yeah, it's overwhelming. <laughs> We, we specifically had, um, I'm recalling, one um, child that was enrolled in our spina bifida. Well, she's an adolescent now, um, young adult. Um, she, again, was uh, neurotypical, uh, lots of medical complications. Yes, I was going to say, we shared her. Um, she, I feel like she was a really good success. Um, I actually ran into one of her, her adult providers, and she said that transition went so well. So that made me feel really good. It's hard. Oh, there's artists too, sorry. The artists, so people are going because it's clinic time, but Spina Bifida artists did for 30 years as well. Accepting referrals is the last pitch I heard them say. They're still going to the program, so. Yeah. The artists, so for those who can say. Are, this is a wonderful program. It's got such a nice job. Um, they're very expensive to run. Do you think you cover a third of your cost for billing? So Chad Hero is coming up on <laughs> If we were truly moving to a value-based payment model, this program would clearly pay for itself on the cost savings. We're not there. So, um, so come out on Sunday. Thanks for bringing the both together. Thank you. Thank you so much.